through our summer series uh, in the Gospel of John, looking at Christ's last teaching to his disciples, his upper room discourse. Today we find ourselves in John chapter 16. We're reading, beginning in the second half of verse 4. In the ESV, it splits into two paragraphs, I think wisely so. We're going to be picking up in the second half of verse 4 and reading through to the end of verse 15. This is the last of, uh, of the three large statements the Lord makes uh, in his upper room discourse concerning the Holy Spirit, uh, the third of his paraclete passages. That's the word translated helper uh, in our ESV, and so we'll see something of the Holy Spirit today with God's help. You can find that reading on page 902, which you picked up in ESV on the way in. Before we go to the Lord and read his word, let us return to his throne of grace and pray that he would bless the reading and the hearing. Let's pray. Gracious Lord and living God, you who have given us your living word by the power of your spirit and the inspiration that you have given through men, we pray that you would guide us into all the truth concerning yourself that we need to see today. We pray that you would speak to us, that you would give us understanding, and that you would open our eyes and our minds More than that, open our hearts and soften them to see something of your work and your people and the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, in turn, would draw us to Christ, that we, in turn, would become worshipers of you, and so fulfill the aim that you have for your people, to rejoice in who you are and what you have done for us. Help us, O Lord, to see these things, uh, and give us your grace, we pray in your name. Amen. Hear now God's word as we find it in John chapter 16, verse 4 and following. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Holy Spirit, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he indeed add a blessing to its reading and to its hearing. Whenever you meet someone for the first time, chances are you go through a pretty standard series of interview questions to get to know them. It's the way we engage in small talk. It's the way that we Uh, figure out what another person is into and and the things that they're about. And so, you know, the routine, you ask them uh, if they're married, where they grew up, 
they have any kids, maybe grandkids? And at some point in that process, that those uh, questions, you come to that all-important question, so what do you do? It's one of the ways that we place one another. It's one of the primary ways we have of figuring out who another person is. We ask about function or career, and sometimes it might make a difference in the way that we interact with them when we find out that they're an artist, or they're a programmer, uh, or they're a homemaker, or a student, or maybe they're unemployed. That's one of the primary ways that we have to place other people. We ask them, what do they do? Now, this question, what do you do, is also, one of the two primary questions every believer ought to be able to answer concerning the Holy Spirit. The first of those two questions you ought to be able to answer is, who is the Holy Spirit? The second one is, what does the Holy Spirit do? Now, in our studies several weeks ago, we've already really answered that first one, who is the Holy Spirit? We began to talk about the person and work of the Holy Spirit back in chapter 14. We saw that the Holy Spirit is not an it, but he is a he, he is a person, one of the three distinct yet inseparable persons of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He shares one immutable and eternal will and essence, one power and glory with the Father and the Son. That's who he is. And through the rest of our studies, we've seen little by little, we've been chipping away at that second question. We've seen again and again some of the individual tasks that the Holy Spirit does when he gets a hold of his people, but we haven't really summarized it yet into one concrete statement. What does the Holy Spirit do? What is his aim, his goal? Is there some overarching purpose in all of the little individual tasks that the Holy Spirit does? And that seems to be part of what Jesus is giving his people today. We find that answer in these verses. It comes toward the end. And so before we can get to that, there is a little bit of ground that we need to cover before we can see what is the overarching aim of the Spirit? What is He really doing? We see a couple other things. First, we see the blessing of the Spirit. The first thing that confronts us in this passage is the overwhelming blessing of the Spirit. Perhaps you're as perplexed as I am, and many other people are, when we look at verse 7. It sticks out in this passage like a sore thumb. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. Now, Jesus is always telling us things that are hard to understand. You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Okay? Blessed are you when you're persecuted. I guess I'll have to take that uh, on faith. And, and many other things that are simply difficult for us to wrap our minds around. But chapter 16, verse 7 in John's Gospel really sets its own standard of difficulty. It's to your advantage. It's good for you if I go away. And we read those words and we think, really? How is that possible? How can it be possibly a good thing for the church or even for humanity in general that the Lord would no longer be here where we are walking among us doing the things and saying the things that he did with his disciples while he was here how could it possibly be to our advantage that he would go away I mean here we are Broken believers, all of us, yes, redeemed and, and saved if we call upon the Lord, but still broken believers, still making a mess of everything while we wait for him to return. Isn't that the point, that we would be with him? 
seems like every time you see someone else who professes to be a believer on the television or in the news media, they always seem to be saying just the wrong thing to make everybody else look bad. And you wonder they couldn't find somebody better to represent all the rest of us. And we're all just down here making a mess of it while we wait for Jesus to return. Wouldn't it be nice if sometimes he just showed up and set the record straight? Wouldn't it be nice if he simply showed up and healed all those people that we keep praying for? Wouldn't it be nice if Jesus went and held counsel with foreign dignitaries and demanded justice for his persecuted people that we pray for week in and week out? And you can probably think of a whole host of other situations and things that you secretly wish Jesus would just show up and do already. Doctrines that would be a lot easier to prove if he were here, or maybe just a situation where you wish he would just show up, not to do anything, but just to be there just to be with you and to comfort you and to make you know and realize that he is hearing you and he's with you. But he says, it's actually to your advantage that I go away and that the helper should come to you. Now, if we wonder how this could be possible, the reason is that Jesus knows us far better than we know ourselves. Take a look in John's gospel. Turn back to chapter 1. One of the very opening statements, John is setting up everything he's going to tell us about the Lord. John chapter 1, we're going to read verses 9 and 10. The true light which enlightens everyone, so far so good. The true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him yet... The world did not know him. He was there. Right before their very eyes, they saw him and yet rejected him. You see, we tend to think that what we really need in our life with the Lord is something visible, something that can, uh, can give us some reassurance, something external, maybe something recognizably, outwardly glorious. That would help so much, wouldn't it, in those situations where we, we find it hard to figure out what the Lord is doing? Wouldn't it really help our faith if he would simply show up and tell us what he's doing? And we have all of those, uh, those blanket promises, and they're good. And I don't mean to say it irreverently so, but when you're in the depths of despair sometimes, you say, well, he's working these things out for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. We know that, and that's good, but don't we sometimes secretly wish he would simply show up and say, here's how I'm working it out for you. And we tend to think that if he would be here, you know, if the Lord would show his hand, maybe give us some outward reassurance, we would have the strength to hang on a little longer. But we forget how capable we all are of ignoring the truth, even when it's staring us right in the face. Just as so many missed the truth about Jesus. They witnessed his miracles, and what happened? They were infuriated that he healed on the Sabbath. They listened to his wonderful teaching, his wonderful words dropped from his lips. One of those beautiful phrases, I think, in Luke's gospel. The wisdom that fell from his lips, and what happened? They, they turned aside and said, these things are too difficult. And so they rejected him. 
They arrested him. They crucified him. They took him out to a public road, and they hung a sign above his head in three different languages so that everyone who passed by would see it, and it said, this is the king of the Jews. And yet everybody passed by and said, oh, that couldn't be him. If you'll forgive my constant use of children's literature for illustrations, one of the favorite stories in our household is Harry the Dirty Dog. Maybe you know Harry the Dirty Dog. Harry was a white dog with black spots who loved everything except getting a bath. And so he hid the scrubbing brush uh, in the backyard, and he went out to play, and he got dirty and dirtier and dirtiest. Until finally he became so dirty that Harry was no longer a white dog with black spots, but he was a black dog with white spots, and he wondered if maybe his family was missing him, and so he went home. And as Harry squeezed through the gate in the backyard, he overheard his family having conference. Has anyone seen Harry? When he heard this, he tried to convince them that he was Harry. He did all of his old clever tricks. He flip-flopped and he flop-flipped. He stood up and he danced and he sang and he rolled over and played dead. But everyone simply shook their head and said, oh, no, that couldn't be Harry. You see, the Lord showed up doing the things the Messiah should do, and he said the things the Messiah should say, but he didn't look like the Messiah they thought. And so everybody shook their head and said, oh, no, it couldn't be him. And it was staring them in the face, and they missed it, and they rejected him. The Lord knows us much better than we know ourselves, doesn't he? The Lord knows how we work. He knows how blind we can be in the presence of glory. He knows that we often far overestimate our ability to discern what the Lord is doing if we could only see it. He knows that we far underestimate the effects of sin in our lives and the way that it colors what we understand the Lord is doing. And we're not so naturally perceptive as we might like to think that we are. So Jesus promises to give the help that we need. He promises to send the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit, it is the divine helper who comes to take the truth of Jesus, who he is and what he's done and what he continues to do for his people and he takes it and he sinks it deeper than where our eyes can perceive. It is the Holy Spirit who gives us eyes of faith and Paul says, Somewhere in 2 Corinthians that the Lord who made light shine out of the darkness has made his light shine in our hearts to give us a knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Even when we can't see it with our eyes, the Holy Spirit does this in the hearts of his people. And that's what we need. Not just something we can see and perceive because we're not so perceptive as we think we are. We need a spiritual work to be done in us, and so the Lord sends his spirit. That's what he does. Spiritual discernment is what Jesus' disciples most need, and Jesus promises to send the blessing of the spirit. Now, we need to make sure we're not misunderstanding Jesus' statement here. Jesus is not presenting us with an either-or. You can either have Jesus or you can have the Holy Spirit, and one of these is better than the other. This is not a candy jar filled with many different colored things that all look look delicious, and he says, you can pick just one. Jesus isn't making some blanket statement saying that it's always better to have the Holy Spirit and not quite as good to have the Son. 
The reason he's saying this, don't forget what Jesus is doing. He's preparing his disciples for his departure. Not just his departure, but the culmination of his ministry. Jesus is about to fulfill all the work the Lord had given him to do. And all those miracles, all that teaching, all of the righteousness, and all of the perfect, sinless living that he did was all a part of that ministry, and it was about to be done. He was about to give his life as a ransom for many. That's not the sort of thing that can or ever should have to happen again. He says, we're entering a new phase. I'm about to ascend. I'm about to go back to the Father where I ought to be, where I will sit at the right hand interceding for you as I ought to do, and that's a benefit, that's an advantage to you that I go away and do that work there, because from there you will come to me with all of your sin and all of your brokenness and all of your need, and I will meet you with my grace and my righteousness and my full provision, and I will be there, and while I'm there, the absolute best possible scenario is that I will send the helper to be with you now. It's a new phase in the life of the church. It is as the writer uh, intimates, of, uh, the writer of Hebrews talks about this new covenant. The time when all the sins will be forgiven and uh, no one will need to have uh, someone else come to them and say, know the Lord, for I will write my law on their hearts. How does that happen? It happens spiritually. And sins are forgiven and the Lord ascends and he sends the Spirit. What is the blessing of the Spirit? This first point that we're considering here. Well, the blessing of the Spirit is that the Holy Spirit makes the unseen Savior present to his people. And whether we're ready to accept it or believe it in quite this way or not, the Spirit makes the unseen Savior present to his people in a way that is more effective than if we would simply see him with our outward perception. It's spiritual work that only he can do, and it is our advantage. It is the blessing of the Spirit. Now, once we've seen the blessing of the Spirit, we're ready to consider the works of the Spirit. You'll notice that's a plural there in the way I'm phrasing it. We're not yet at the aim, the overarching goal, but we're still considering, well, well what does the Holy Spirit do, sort of serially, the, the many things, the many things that the Holy Spirit does. And as we look at the passage, it seems like, the Holy Spirit has come to do a few very different things. It speaks about the Holy Spirit's ministry in the world and speaks about the Holy Spirit's ministry in the disciples, the apostles. One of those is a convicting work and the other seems to be a leading work. One seems to be rather negative and the other one seems to be pretty positive. One tears down and one builds up. But consider these verses that we see. Verse 8, when he comes... He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Now, verse 13, very similar phrasing. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. He will declare to you the things that are to come. Now, those seem just about as opposite as we could imagine. But there is actually a common work that is happening in both of those operations of the Spirit. The Spirit is really doing the same thing. There's a common theme, a common activity. What is he doing? Well, the Spirit comes into the world and he makes the truth of Jesus known. Those are the works of the Spirit. He works to make the truth of Jesus known. Consider the Spirit's work in the world. 
When he comes, he will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, it says. Now, convict, uh, in this sense, is a legal term. You can think of the Holy Spirit almost as a prosecuting attorney, and he hauls the witness into the stand, and he asks all the right questions. He lays the facts to bear. He leaves no out uh, for the convicted uh, or for the persecuted. I'm sorry, prosecuted. I'm losing my words this morning. I think I should be a preacher. Uh, he leaves no out for the prosecutor to squirm out from underneath the conviction that he's laying. It's a, it's a legal term. He presses home these key questions. He works to convict. Now, that language makes sense, doesn't it, when we think of conviction of sin? If you're a believer, you know what that feels like. You know the press of the Spirit to expose your sin so that you look at it and you say... I have no excuse for this. You know what it is to convict of sin, but what about this language of convicting of righteousness? Convicting of judgment? Those aren't normally things that we think of repenting of, so how is the Holy Spirit convicting of righteousness and judgment? Well, he does it by making the truth of Jesus known. And when the truth of Jesus is known, it exposes all the lies that the world believes about him. Let's not forget, there's more than one kind of righteousness, isn't there? When Paul was converted, he found that all his former hopes of righteousness according to the law were nothing more than a weight that he had to throw off. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul looks back in his life as a righteous, zealous Pharisee, and he says, For Jesus' sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. There's a man who knew what it was to be convicted of righteousness, a false righteousness. True righteousness is only to be found in Jesus. And the Spirit reveals who He is and what He's done in order that all of our false righteousnesses may be cast off. We have many ways of finding false righteousness, don't we? Not always just according to the Jewish law. The world has their own standards. What, what are the standards of righteousness the world might have? They wouldn't speak in these terms, perhaps, but uh, do you take care of the environment? Are you a good person? Do you recycle? Because if not, whew, you are unrighteous. I'm not saying recycling is a bad thing. I'm simply saying look at the different standards that we have. There are different ways of counting ourselves righteous and good or unrighteous. And when the Holy Spirit comes, he exposes the truth of who Jesus is and says this is where real righteousness is to be found. And the one who has come and lived perfectly and has laid down his life as a ransom for many and has ascended to the Father. Conviction of judgment works the same way. The world pronounced its own judgment on the Lord Christ. What did they call him? Well, they called him a blasphemer. They called him a wicked man. They cast him outside the gates of the city. They killed him like a criminal. The priests and the Levites reviled him as a man accursed. That was their judgment. But when the Spirit came on the day of Pentecost and came upon the apostles, Peter stood up and pronounced the true judgment for all the people of Jerusalem to hear. Here's what he said. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. What is he saying? Here was your judgment. 
But the Lord has made him who he is, the Lord Jesus Christ. He has proclaimed to the Holy Spirit that he is the righteous one and your judgment is false. And what happens in light of all that? Conviction of judgment. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Conviction of sin and conviction of righteousness, conviction of false judgment comes about in the same way when the truth of Jesus Christ is made known and we see him for who he is. That's the Spirit's work. That's what he's doing. But isn't that the same work the Holy Spirit does among his people and through the apostles? Verse 13, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. Verse 14, he will take what is mine and declare it to you. You hardly need me to tell you that there are some pretty bad interpretations of verses like this. Interpretations that basically amount to people believing that the Lord gives uh, his people minute by minute, situation by situation, truthfulness and direction. He certainly guides his people and he gives them wisdom and discernment as a spiritual gift. And these are all good things and true things and that's good. But you end up with professing Christians who can justify almost anything because they use that trump card when they start the conversation, don't they? The Holy Spirit has revealed to me that... Da, da, da. You ever had anybody say that to you? What do you say in return? You've got nothing. You've got nothing to reply. Well, the Holy Spirit told me that uh, I shouldn't be with my wife because there's this other woman uh, whom I would be much happier with, and so I'm going to leave her, and the Holy Spirit has revealed this to me. The Holy Spirit does not contradict himself. The Holy Spirit holds marriage in high regard and would not tell you to leave the covenant wife that you've taken and go off with another. But that happens in all sorts of situations, not that particular sin. All sorts of situations. It should be evident by now that this is not at all what these verses are about. The Holy Spirit is not interested in giving his people special insights like a daily Christian horoscope. Here's what you're going to encounter. Here are the things you need to know for today's decisions. What is the Holy Spirit interested in? He's interested in making the truth of Jesus Christ known to his people. He has done that decisively. He has done that finally through the work of the men who received this promise the first time. And a few others who partnered together with them in the initial gospel message that went out. The Holy Spirit carried them along and inspired their writings so that what they wrote down and what we have is the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ that we can hold in our hands and look at with our eyes. If you want something external to convince you of what the Lord is doing, here it is. And the Lord leads his people into all truth. That's what he's doing. The Holy Spirit inspired his people to make his truth of Jesus Christ known. That's what the Holy Spirit does. Whether he's, he's guiding his church or he's convicting the world, the Holy Spirit makes the truth of Jesus known. Now, finally here, we can, uh, we can jump back to our original question. What does the Holy Spirit do? Is there some overarching theme in, in all of the little minute things that the Holy Spirit does with his people? Is there one thread that ties it all together? And yes, there is. The Holy Spirit does lots of things, that's true. He convicts the world, he guides his disciples. He hears from the Father, he declares to his people, he reveals things that are yet to come. He declares what belongs to the Lord, but verse 14 is what ties it together. What does he say? He will glorify me. If you want a simple statement, somebody walks up to you 
or come to you in an elevator, and before the, the door dings and, and they open and they're gone forever, what does the Holy Spirit do? What do you say? He glorifies Jesus Christ. That's it. If you could meet the Holy Spirit like you would meet any other person, you would go through your litany of interview questions, Holy Spirit, what do you do? He would probably say something like, I glorify Jesus Christ. That's the sum of all of the flurry of activity in the early church. It's the aim of God's work and his people now. To borrow a phrase, it is the prime directive of the Holy Spirit in the world. The Holy Spirit says, I glorify Jesus Christ. I make known the truth of who he is. I make him more and more beautiful to the eyes of his people with each passing day. I confirm to their hearts that they belong to him. I bear witness in the hearts of his people, and I give them boldness to approach the throne of grace because of the work on the cross. That's what the Holy Spirit would tell us. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He glorifies the Son. Spurgeon said it this way. It is the chief office of the Holy Spirit to glorify Christ. He does many things, but this is what he aims at in all of them, to glorify Christ. This is just one little phrase. Just one tiny little phrase in this whole long string of things that Jesus is telling his disciples the Holy Spirit will do. So how do we know that that this is the one in all of New Testament revelation, that this is the one that ties everything together? Well, when we search the rest of Scripture, it bears all the weight of that, doesn't it? How do we know that the Holy Spirit is intent on glorifying Jesus and that this is his directive? Well, we know that because that's also what God the Father is doing, isn't it? In Ephesians chapter 1, turn there with me if you would. Ephesians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul lays out the what and the why of all of creation. What is the Lord doing in everything that he has made? Worlds and universes and galaxies and everything, what is he doing? Well, he begins in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. There's the foundational statement, then jump down to verse 8. All these spiritual blessings which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things in earth. What is the purpose and a plan of God the Father in the world? It is to place Jesus Christ in the seat of prominent authority. Where there is no rival, there is no equal, there is no other beside him in our view. That everything should succumb to him and be underneath him. That every knee would bow before Jesus. That every tongue would confess that he is the Lord. It's God's plan and purpose in all that he's made to glorify Jesus. Now, Jesus affirms this truth, actually. In John chapter 8, we won't turn there, but Jesus has a dispute with the Pharisees. And he says, I do not seek my own glory. That's what they accused him of. They said, you have no one else to bear witness with you, and you're seeking your own glory. He says, no, 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 no. I'm not seeking my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Who is the one who is the judge of all the earth? Who is the one who is seeking the glory of the Son? It is God the Father, isn't it? That is what he's doing in the world. And so it only makes sense that the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit who is very God of very God, 
who shares the same one immutable will, would be doing the exact same thing that the Father is doing. Making Jesus known even though he is not seen. Declaring the truth through his apostles and prophets and teachers and preachers. He's making known the the person of Christ so that he would look more glorious to his people. He's accomplishing the same work of the Father. J.I. Packer, I know we're maybe belaboring this point a little bit, but you need to see this. J.I. Packer puts it much more beautifully than I could hope to. He calls this work of bringing glory to Jesus the floodlight ministry of the Holy Spirit. Here's what he says. It is as if the Spirit stands behind us, throwing light over our shoulder on Jesus who stands facing us. The Spirit's message is never, look at me. Listen to me, come to me, get to know me, but the Spirit's message is always look at Him and see His glory. Listen to Him and hear His word. Go to Him and have life. Get to know Him and taste His gift of joy and peace. Brothers and sisters, this is what the Holy Spirit does when He gets a hold of someone. It causes them to see Jesus as more and more glorious. He makes him present even though he is not seen. He reveals the truth of who he is and all that he has done for his people, even in times and circumstances where it is hard to find our way in the dark. And yet by the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, it causes us to look at the Lord and to see his care for us, to see the sacrifice he made of himself for us, to see his care and his love for his people. This is what the Holy Spirit does. He glorifies Christ. There's only one question that remains. Has the Holy Spirit done that in your life? It's not enough to come and and to see these things and to be affected by them and to think, well, that's nice that the Holy Spirit is doing something that I may have no idea of. Young people, as you've been raised in the church, And you've heard these things over and over and over again. I know it can be hard to discern. Do I actually believe this or is this simply what my parents are teaching me? One question. Is the Lord Jesus Christ glorious to you? Has he given you a conviction of your sin and all the false righteousness that you would hide behind? And all the false judgments, maybe that the world would be telling you, this is what Jesus is. Has the Holy Spirit thrown light on him and said, go to him? If he's doing that, turn to him and believe in him, that he is the glorious one, and find life in his name. It doesn't go just for the young people here today, but for all the rest of us. There are lots of ways that people in other churches might tell us, here's how you can tell the Holy Spirit is working in a person, but this is what Jesus says. You know the Holy Spirit's working in someone if they think that Jesus is glorious, if he is beautiful and wonderful and true, and if you want to be with him, is the Lord doing that in your heart? Let's pray. Oh, Lord and God, we thank you for a word that we have heard from you. Thank you that you carried along men by your spirit and passed down this word that we would receive it, that we would come and see something of the glory of Christ. 
Oh, Lord, prick the hearts and the consciences of all of us who sit here today, whether we've heard of this glory and seen it for years, whether we are rejoicing in who you are more and more each day, whether we find ourselves in places where it is hard to see the way forward, but we know that you're there and you are glorious, whether we are struggling to know these things for ourselves. Oh, Lord, do that work to make Jesus glorious in our sight. Give us faith in him and life by his name. We pray in your name. Amen.